Hello, and welcome to a special summer 2022 edition of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm the publications editor for the International Horn Society and your host. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of background on how this uh, particular bonus episode came out uh, or came to be. Um, I am a huge fan of Dr. John Erickson. Uh, John and I go way back. He was uh, a, a very uh, influential teacher in my life quite early on, and actually he has done an episode of the Horn Call podcast, one of the earlier ones. Um, John is uh, an incredibly knowledgeable, uh, productive, and uh, overall you know, big uh, mover and shaker in the horn world. And uh, if you don't know already, he's got uh, a fantastic website that he uh, co-created called Horn Matters. Um, he teaches horn at Arizona State University, and he also has a podcast called the Horn Notes Podcast. So if you haven't checked that uh, podcast out, uh, be sure to do that. Uh, you can find it anywhere podcasts are available. Um, so uh, stepping back, uh, I have been a longtime fan of John's podcast, and he uh, brought up a really interesting topic in one of his recent episodes about equipment. And so I reached out to John and, uh, you know, just kind of chatted a little bit about things. And I got to thinking, well, you know, with the International Horn Symposium coming up in August, it might be fun to do a little bit of a deep dive into um, equipment. So if that's not your thing, uh, that I that's totally fine. No, no judgment there. But uh, this podcast is going to get into some of the real specific things about mouthpieces, horns, uh, you know, the the details like that. So uh, if that sounds like uh, an interesting time for you, uh, we hope you enjoy our conversation. Yeah, I thought we could just kind of pick up from where where we left off. So this kind of started out with me uh, checking out your most recent um, Horn Notes podcast uh, episodes. Uh, really great stuff, as always. Uh, really insightful, and uh, you know, I, I just uh, you're you're one of my my horn heroes, John. So, <laughs> oh, thank you. You're too you're kind. Very, you're really uh, too kind. But, uh, but no, uh, I, uh, I enjoy putting those down. I don't do them like every. You know, I'm a little inconsistent. I'm not like every month sort of thing. I'll go in little spurts. But I do enjoy putting together the podcasts. I feel like it's like it's, it's this is a great format for talking about a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, and it's. Um, it's good content. It's knowledgeable, and you know, we got to listen to something when you're on your drive-in from work or, <laughs> right, or, or you know, getting ready in the morning. I have a little portable speaker that I just kind of have in the house with me wherever I am, and that's where I, how I listen to the different podcasts and stuff. So yeah, but uh, yeah, if, if anybody that's listening, if you've not checked out uh, Dr. John Erickson's uh, Horn Notes podcast, you you can find it pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Every, um, everywhere, yeah. And I've done yeah. over fifty episodes at this point, so. Yeah, and they're always there's always something interesting. There's always a tidbit of information that was like, oh yeah, I hadn't hadn't thought about it that way. Um, you know, the, the couple of recent episodes you did uh, about etudes, about you know, it's just time to retire some of those uh, <laughs> some of those some of those old fashioned etudes from the 19th century that haven't really kept pace with modern horn playing. Um, no. And then your your I believe the most recent one was about mouthpieces and accuracy. 
And that was what mm-hmm. uh, led me to uh, just kind of uh, reach out via email. You know, you and I kind of keep in touch periodically every couple of months or so. Right. We might drop each other a message. But I was like, hey, there's, I've got a couple of questions here. And my first one was about thinking about when it might be time to uh, go to a bigger inner diameter mouthpiece. And you, you, mm-hmm. you provided a really great response to me. And I, I'm kind of still on the fence about that. And, you know, you, I think you've mentioned in, in Horn Matters before, like what, what led you to maybe try a, a larger inner diameter? And then I, I think you said you're on a 17.75 at this point. Yeah. You know, I've gone again, uh, you know, we could uh, go into the topic of regrets and things too, you know, <laughs> we've all like went too far, but that's how far, that's how you know anything, right? You have to kind of experiment sometimes. Right. Exactly. To find things. Um, the whole inner diameter thing to just go back. Uh, well, first I'll just dive back into the beginning of time for me okay. with equipment. So, um, and I don't even know if you know this, do you know what my original college major was and what my goal was out think, of college? I think I've read it. And I think you also told me maybe like years ago at Brevard or something, mm-hmm. music business yeah. or music industry. Something right. Like I was originally a music business major and my goal was to become an instrument repairman. Mm-hmm. And here I am. Teaching at Arizona State and having played in Nashville and things like that. But which is to say, I've always been interested in equipment. Um, It's the sort of thing that can get you in trouble to a point because you kind of know too much and then you start experimenting too far. Um, But but it helps a lot of things. And, And going to the inner diameter thing, it's very interesting because, well, every student and every player is an individual. And you'll hear very individualistic things when people try different equipment. And early in my teaching, I rarely had people try much much of anything with mouthpieces. I think I was very influenced by the whole general sort of Farkas thing, like you just need to learn how to play the mouthpiece you have, don't you? Right. You know, which is good advice to a point. You know, you you can't expect a mouthpiece to solve every problem. But just like, uh, for example, it's very striking, though. So going to the inner diameter sort of thing, uh, one student I'm thinking of particularly, if they played on their regular mouthpiece down into the low range, they can get the low notes okay. They sound, but they sound buzzy and reedy, kind of mm. bassoonish. You know, mm-hmm. we all know kind of what that sound is. Right. So if you increase the inner diameter just enough with some people, that actually goes away or largely goes away mm. without changing anything else any other factor. That's pretty incredible. And I always uh, say to people too, even though that again, this is sort of bad advice, but I mean, how big is a trombone mouthpiece relative to a horn one? And they could still play about as high as us, right? Yeah. If not higher. Yeah. So um, we kind of get hung up about uh, the size of our mouthpiece a little bit. Um, but that said, so there was a point I was playing, I mean, at 825, inner diameter actually feels really nice on my oh, lips. Wow. My, my lips are somewhat heavy. Um, they're not like heavy, heavy, but they're heavier than average, mm-hmm. I would I'm say. Sorry. And an 825 feels really nice, but I just can't play on an 825. It's just like sucks all the energy out of my lips. It's just too much. It's too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if I go back again to uh, where I began, I began on very standard sort of Giardinelli rims. Pretty narrow or pretty narrow inner diameter. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty narrow. And, and really you get down to it. Those rims were made for the players who played them, who would have been basically to be more explicit, sort of white male players from like the forties and Mm fifties, you know, kind of the typical New York city player. Mm -hmm. 
because that's where Giardinelli was. Right. And they, they made a product for those people, and it was a good product on the whole, although somewhat inconsistent, which we mm-hmm. could talk about for a while. So I started off playing on, I think it was a Phil Meyer rim was the one that I ended up on, okay. which was similar to the stock rim, but a little rounder. And now, I mean, it's so narrow, I can't even play on that rim anymore. <laughs> and occasionally I have students try, I've got a couple of them and they, everybody hates them basically. Yeah. Uh, but somehow I made it work. It's like, you kind of puzzle. It's like, how did I make this stuff work? Yeah. You know, back in the day, but I think I was just strong. I was stubborn. And when you have no other um, options, I mean, or no other options are presented, you kind of just, you make it. Well, and, and then back then too, it was, it was really, I don't want to say it was hard to buy mouthpieces, but it kind of was. Uh, we didn't have an internet, you know, it was kind of like what showed up at a, at a store you could get at, or, you yeah. know, there, there was only so there weren't really, I mean, there's horn events and things, but you don't really get to those yeah. very much. I remember opening I, the paper Giardinelli catalog and calling from the number in the catalog and telling them I wanted such and such mouthpiece and, you know, getting the credit card and, and <laughs> very, very old yeah. fashioned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was like sending checks to Atkinson's <laughs> in the mail. I remember yeah. doing that. Um, so, yeah. So, so the thing is that now you can get such good. So the whole inner diameter thing, I would credit, um, Lasky with their original line of mouthpieces, really opening up that as a thing you could actually do something with because mm-hmm. they made like, say the G cup and they, now they've reintroduced it with a variety of inner diameters. Right. And, um, whether you like the rim or not is, is a question. I think most people find it's okay, but it's, there might be another one that may be a little better for you, mm-hmm. but they've, uh, you can definitely experiment with the inner diameter thing. And it's definitely worth trying. The, the main thing that you might notice just as an average kind of player, trying a bigger inner diameter is two things are two things. One, is that you will have a sensation of more air is going through your lips. And it has to do with, it's just a wider opening of your lips. It's not because the bore is bigger. (laughs) We always get kind of hung up about bore, you know, especially again, going back to Giardinelli's, you know, you had the big, the C1 was like the big one that, you know, (laughs) if you dared play it, you know, I played a C1 for a little while. I played a C4 for a while. I was in that whole world for a while. But most players today play a, a bore somewhere around, say, like 12 to 14, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, with, and what does that number mean? I'm just throwing out numbers and somebody out there is driving like, <laughs> what does, what's 12 about 12? So it's worth reminding and remembering that it's basically uh, there's a type of drill that's used by machinists and they're numbered. And it, it's similar to wire gauge. Right. So number one is the biggest number of this type of machinist drill. And in my uh, hobby time, I work on model trains. I have drills down to number 70 or maybe 75 even, um, which are like sort of like the size of a needle. They're like Mm -hmm. real small. Um, So that set continues all the way down to there, but the usable range for horn mouthpieces is pretty much like one to 20, um, somewhere in there. So it was very handy measurement system. Mm -hmm. So that's why people throw out those numbers. So the larger inner diameter mouthpiece is going to feel like it's bigger bore, quote unquote, but it's actually just wider across the thing. So more air moves through your lips. Yeah. Um, the other thing you would notice is you tend to put more volume out on it as well, because I don't know, it's something about the wider inner surface of your lips or something. It just opens things up um, a little smaller inner diameter 
can give a little more of a chamber music-y kind of sound mm-hmm. without actually really changing anything. It's just sort of sort of tightens up the, the feel of the instrument somehow. Yeah. And you wouldn't think it would make that much difference, but actually it makes a ton of difference. But another thing that I always mention to people just kind of off the bat is that in terms of mouthpieces, there's a couple different things that really matter, but basically thousands of an inch really matter. Like you oh, yeah. can notice these things. So if we go back to like um, the old school Jardinelli mouthpieces back, that seems like you were buying them back in the day too. Yeah, so 90s you, in the 90s. And I, I, had, I actually bought a set of the drills. So I've got a set of drills one to 20. And if you start seeing like something that says it's a C8, for example, mm-hmm. and then you get your number eight drill out and actually know it's like a nine or a 10, you know, it's not exactly what they said it is. And that's like more than a few thousandths off of like what it claims to be. So, um, and if you get to, or if you take like a other, I don't want to name other brands really. And I, uh, cause I'm not, and my point is not to trash any brands, but if you took um, sort of lower price range mouthpieces, and just compared, like, say, the rims of them. And mm-hmm. you can, if you can feel a difference between two different mouthpieces of the same model at the rim, then how many other thousands of an inch are off in other places that you can't right. feel? So it can make for a real inconsistent product. But again, back in the day, like Giardinelli, there's a whole article that's not online anymore. It's by John Stork. I remember and that he, article. And he talks about how he wandered into the shop and he got a job with them. And they were using basically antiquated equipment mm. to make the mouthpieces. But their general thing was it's not the gun, it's the gunner. You know, it's like, <laughs> and you, you can make a fine mouthpiece on a piece of antiquated old machinery. But it's a little harder to do than you can now. So now they've got like CNC lays. Mm. There's stuff that can make very consistent very good mouthpieces. So that's part of what's great about now, but also the problem because you're going to end up buying a few. You should anyway. Oh yeah. Especially if you're um, teaching. I mean, it's and, worth worth the investment. Yeah. Or even just to you're a good student or just a good amateur or anything else. I always tell people that you should own at least five mouthpieces. And mm. then people are like, why five? Well, I figure if by you get to, by the time you get to five, at least one of them should be better than the other four. <laughs> yeah. Noticeably. Yeah. But you do need a little perspective or you're not going to know. Yeah. You have to know what, what you like about whatever mouthpiece you are on or that you're trying to switch to, to, to be able to, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I would, yeah. I, one thing that comes up for me, and I wanted to ask you just in your own personal experience and also with students, how long do you feel it takes you when you change some parameter? And, and let me step back a little bit. Whenever whenever I you know encourage a student to try something different or I try something different myself, I try to minimize the amount of variables. Like if I'm going to go to a different rim, I keep the same cup. And you know if I'm going to try a different cup, I keep the same rim. That way you're not confused about what's actually creating whatever perceived or real changes you feel. And, uh, you know, and I try to make sure we do that off the bat, but then, you know, I tell the student, try it for a week, you know, don't go back to your, don't go back to your, your other mouthpiece, or sometimes I'll ask them to give me their other mouthpiece. So I, so they're not tempted and just say, you know, try this for a week and you'll know. And for me, it's, it seems like less time I can tell in about a couple of days. I'm either I'm either over the moon about it and I'm ready to kind of dive in and do that switch or I'm like, no, I'm just disgusted with this. <laughs> and I you know, I can't yeah. doesn't feel like it's gonna work for me. So 
Well, I sense it. So there's basically at an extreme sort of two groups of players. One group wouldn't change anything unless they knew they had like a month off or something and they, uh. nobody was going to hear them at all. And they're just like, cause they just, and I can understand that because you've got a job to do and stuff and you just don't need, um, you know, variables thrown into your life. Like right. I just need right. the cheap plan and things need to feel the same. And I got to play this concert and this other thing and yada, which is yeah. fine. Um, on the other hand, I tend to be more on the other end of the extreme, which is like, if I found something better, I would tend to switch to it today Mm -hmm. and just go with it. I feel like I can tell a lot about a piece of equipment very quickly. Mm -hmm. Like you just do a few key things back and forth between a couple um, different uh, mouthpieces or horns or anything. You can tell a lot pretty fast. Mm -hmm. um, it, and it's so, and again, uh, usually, but I agree with you. You don't want to change more variables than you have to. You want to be very um, uh, conscious about that. Mm -hmm. Um then again, um, something like you may think you you like your rim, for example, and then but then if you change to another rim, you might find your articulations just magically are like better, yep. or your sound is better, and it's like, well, what was up with that exactly? But it's just sort of a mystery of how you connect with that mouthpiece, and it works for you. And I will say at times too, there's there's you you have a but like you're talking about students, yeah. There's times where you need to do sort of a little mini intervention, uh -huh. um, where somebody will come in, and again, I don't want to say brands, you know, but just say some, um, uh, let's say some Asian mouthpiece that came with some instrument, just right, right, and uh, maybe not Japan, some other Asian country, right. Um, and somebody's playing it, and they're doing like grad auditions on it, and I'll see them playing the audition, and I think, okay, I bet they could sound a lot better pretty fast if they were just actually playing a different mouthpiece. But then it mm. makes me wonder like, well, their current teacher, like how did they let them do this? And there's a whole category of people that are just not very versed about equipment, I would say, or they're very, they're like overly cautious maybe. Mm -hmm. But I, and again, but I was like that when I was first teaching. So I don't want to blame people either. Um, there just came a point where I realized there was some problems you could solve like quickly by just, changing mm -hmm. um, some equipment parameters. Um, you will hear articulations get a lot better and they'll be like, oh, I can play, uh, you know, high C or whatever. And, and then there are other parameters that it's a little harder to, um, you have to kind of work with it a little bit to visualize it. But just for example, some mouthpieces because of the way they fit and the way they're made, they're very stiff and you're mm -hmm. trying to do trills one thing I always mention to people, like if you play natural horn with a very authentic natural horn mouthpiece, you will be surprised how easy it is to trill because, and then you're like, Oh, okay. That's why Mozart wrote all those trills because yeah. it's actually relatively easy to trill on a natural horn with the real authentic setup. It's not so slotty. It's a very smooth, um, mm -hmm. easy little interval to you can kind to of get across. you can manipulate the notes a lot more easily with with your embouchure they're not you know they're not getting those pops between the harmonics that you would get on on like a modern yeah piece. it's much smoother across the harmonics yeah no that's interesting which well, you can I, alter you know on valve torn of course you can that's part of testing mouthpieces you will feel some of those things especially slurs and stuff i think a mistake people make like if you go to a horn workshop 
I've heard vendors tell me this. Basically, they get really tired of people just nailing high C's over and over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. You know, so actually there was a point where I used to go to the workshops and I would actually purposely play like high B's <laughs> just to just to kind of give them a little little variety, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, but um anyway, yeah, you test end up testing certain parameters, but mm-hmm. um and certain pieces. But yeah. Then you're uh, part of this too is uh, you know there's the uh, workshop coming up was part of your yeah you're talking about this so you go to a place and you try horns at a workshop and you can do that it can be difficult you know a little bit in its way so (laughs) good luck I shouldn't say it that way no um, I understand you'll see different horns at different price ranges Uh, and and people sometimes wonder like why is that horn that much more than the other horn. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I, I I've thought about I've actually got this in my uh, slate of things I could write about in Horn Matters, but I never have written about. Which is um, sometimes people complain about or complains a strong word, but they will note maybe that some of the custom horn makers out there are basically assembling parts that they largely purchased that were made by other people. Like they don't make their own valve section, mm-hmm. and they don't have a giant lathe to turn their own bells. And things, but but they're putting together a, a horn in a certain way. The other tapers, they will be making their own tapers, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the first branch and the lead pipe are very critical tapers. Um, the bracing on a horn is super important. It's like and it's it's just weirdly magical and uh, some kind of alchemy. You know, if you put braces on a horn just like a quarter inch off from where some optimal location is. It can make a huge difference how the horn sounds and plays. Uh, it's just a very um, – there's a lot of precision in making a really high-end horn that really plays well as opposed to a more of a factory horn, which plays fine yeah, at yeah. the price point. But you would like one that had a little more uh, magic in the sound, a little, little better all the way around. And that has to do a lot with just – fine points that you can't really even see the way the joints are between pieces of tubing um, stresses on the instrument. Um, it's, it's just a lot of effort to make a really fine horn. Yeah. And there's that whole thing between like bracing versus like a long solder bead that's keeping, you know, parts of the tubing together and different, different manufacturer or different builders have different philosophies on that. So it's really quite interesting. Right. Well, again, it's like you can find all kinds of different, differences between horns that you might think are the same and they'll they'll all be be there's so many variables i sometimes mention to people uh, like if you just think about one specific part of the horn there's tons of variables you could have so and that's the very edge of the bell rim Mm -hmm. so the edge of the bell um inside there's a rolled little edge inside that almost certainly there's a piece of wire although lawson didn't put a wire inside theirs so you could make it without a wire. The wire could be brass or it could be steel. It could be hard or it could be soft, either of those materials. They could run some solder into that bead or they could leave it unsoldered. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've also got, not to mention the thickness of the bell itself and the temper of the bell itself. You could also put a garland on it, which oh, yeah. looks cool. And it also influences tone. There's, there's, so I just ran through like, probably you know close to 20 variables you could like add all together yeah just for the very edge of the bell Uh, not to mention every other part of the horn the maker makes a lot of choices 
And what's great about going to like trying horns is you can just, you know, trust the maker that they've made their best choices, mm-hmm. what they think's a good horn and, you know, try it and see what you think. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I didn't go to TMEA this year, but it was, uh, you know, from what the students that I had that went to the Texas uh, Music Educators Association Conference, which is, I think it's probably the biggest one in the world at this point. But, you know, Houghton was there and Pope and all, all the all those folks. And they said the, you know, the exhibit booths were kind of just up and running as as per usual. So I, I hope that it's a, a similar experience at that you know, future horn symposia and workshops. Cause you know, that was a, a place where people feel comfortable going in and, you know, trying different horns and stuff. Although for me, I get a little self-conscious at those things. And, you know, I try to go off to some corner or something if I'm serious about trying an instrument or mouthpiece. And usually, usually the vendor will let you, you know, you can just make sure they have your name and stuff. You're not going to walk no. out of there with some <laughs> valuable no, instrument. No. So yeah, I, yeah I no, they definitely they they would like you to you know they bring all those horns to the thing they would like ideally to sell all of them right because right. that's kind of the goal. Um, so yeah, they'll work with you, um, and and it's really good just to talk to them. I mean, they again, it just depends on the dealer and the vendor and everything, but you can definitely get some, especially you talk to several, you can get some ideas about things mm-hmm. uh, that you'd be looking for, and. Uh, yeah, and you got a lot of options out there. You really do. Got yeah. a lot of options. Yeah, and I, you mentioned you were playing on kind of a, a hybrid uh, mouthpiece, like it's a it's a Lasky, but that you you found an aftermarket modification to it. Somebody been able to yeah. change the rim on it. So my current well Lasky, according to the, what I've seen, they're going to bring out a screw rim version of their mouthpiece. That would mouthpiece. be amazing. Yeah, that would sometime be in the next six months or something. I don't know. I, they they said they will. It's something I have definitely wished they had for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, at a point in time, it must have been like 10 years ago, I just saw this uh, Lasky that somebody had had the bell, had the, excuse me, not the bell cut, the rim cut off mm-hmm. and threaded. And uh, I had had it just kind of around for a long time. And so this gets at a testing thing too. Like there's a way that, you know, in the end, you can't really hear yourself. Mm-hmm. Like you would like to think you hear yourself, but really you don't. Um, you, you're, you're just too close to the bell. So um, playing for other, for my, for my better students or my students, I shouldn't say better students, they're all good, right? Mm-hmm. Playing for my students, especially. I've gotten very interesting feedback on mouthpieces. Yeah, they really like my sound on this Lasky mm-hmm. sort of that somebody else had cut off. So I'm, I'm interested to see, and, and I've got like a mental allergy thing, so I don't play on uh, Brass, uh, you know, a, stand, a regular rim. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm interested when they come out with their the screw, the new version screw rim to try that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've, I have noticed. I used to sometimes play uh, for like non-horn player colleagues. Oh yeah, and nothing against non-horn player colleagues, but actually they don't have like horn ears like a good horn student it all has. sounds like a horn to them yeah it all sounds like yeah a horn. yeah <laughs> it's it in the yeah not only that i mean i don't know they might like it to sound more like a trumpet or a trombone you know and that's not exactly the sound we want so, right yeah so you have to really be careful across that too and it and I'll, i've been playing on several horns i mean especially during the the pandemic i mean i shouldn't we don't, shouldn't entertain ourselves by trying other horns and stuff. But of course, if you have them around and stuff, it's, it's perfectly interesting. Mm-hmm. So I was able to obtain a, just after World War II, crispy, 
crispy. Mm -hmm. So it's like the Horner model, classic crispy and brass. And uh, I, I keep wanting my students to like it, to the sound of it better than my, my other main horn, uh, which is a, presently it's a Patterson uh, Geyer. Uh -huh. But they always like the Patterson a little better. But I keep trying to to find the right <laughs> mouthpiece or something for the crispy to beat it out. This is and, the medium, uh, the it, medium bell crispy, right? It's not like a large. It, it's a you know, it's it's somewhat medium, but it's still larger than the other. Uh -huh. And uh, in any case, if I try that that Lasky mouthpiece on the crispy, it definitely does not sound good. People mm. do not like it. It's just <laughs> kind of. Um, but if I use like a mouthpiece that the crispy sounds good on on. The Patterson, they're kind of like, nope. Yeah, that that's sound good. So it's like, that's part of the problem. You go to a workshop and you're trying horns. The horn that you're trying may not agree with your mouthpiece. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you, it's kind of a whole process that may take you, you know, a good six months to sort out uh, what actually does sound better. And I think you had mentioned you had mentioned this maybe in a podcast or on Horn Matters at one point. If you're seriously going to try horns at a at a at a workshop or a symposium, you should you should have on hand a, a model of your of your standard mouthpiece that you normally play on with a Euro shank and then probably some kind of American shank. Yeah, if you yeah, especially if you're trying multiple horns, right. if you can. I mean, of course, that's kind of a luxury, right? To have all those mouthpieces to begin with. Yeah. Um, but definitely European instruments, especially Alexander's. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say because that's I think what we you're most interested maybe to try because it is I mean, in reality, the most popular horn in the world. I Played think. by the most people. Yeah. Um, and uh, but in the U.S., not as popular. Right. But that's fine. Right. Um, um, was I going to? Oh, so, but it, Alexander needs a different shank than American mouthpiece. Yeah. It just yep. needs one and, and, or it's just not going to kind of come into focus. So I, I think that's part of why they've lacked a degree of popularity in the U.S. Partially is people just trying it with their standard American shank mouthpiece. And mm -hmm. they're kind of like, well, what's all the hubbub about here? This is like, not that good. Right. Yep. But again, the horn's not really in focus because you're not really using the right equipment on it. Um, but you got to test everything. Uh, one thing I do, I want to throw out, be sure to mention to everyone testing horns. I always tell people this, you got to test a high B flat. That's right. Yep. If it doesn't have a high B flat, put the horn down, walk away. Mm -hmm. Because it's just going to break your heart. It doesn't matter what other good qualities it has. doesn't matter what a good deal it is. doesn't matter anything. If it doesn't have a high B flat, you just need to not get that horn. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just going to cause you problems. Yeah. Well, and I'm kind of, you know, I'm sort of at the point in my playing and career where I don't, I don't want to have to work harder to play the instrument. You know, it might be there might be other qualities about the instrument that are, you know, you really like. But if if I if it's tiring me out to just, you know, play a rehearsal or or you know play through a, a normal practice session, all all else being equal, you know, it's it's kind of a it's it's a non-starter. It's like why would you want to have to work harder to to do something that's <laughs> yeah. But when you were younger, you were working harder, right? Like I know I was working hard oh, with yeah. all kind. I mean, I go back and play the mouthpieces yeah. I was using back in the day, and I was like, how am I? How did I do that? Yeah. You know, it's just like I was lifting weights all the time. Yeah. Um, so, but I was strong enough, I guess. And I made it work. Uh, back to the the high B flat topic, just because people are wondering, like, well, what makes a bad high B flat? <laughs> And it, there's a couple different theories about this, but it basically has something to do with specific joint locations. Mm 
mm-hmm. and other acoustical anomalies on your instrument. So um, particularly gyre style horns are prone to a poor high B flat if it's not made just right, mm-hmm. which is why those horns tend to, especially for a long time, um, you know, factories were making like a crispy style horn because that didn't have that problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas a Geyer style horn, I mean, say go back to Carl Geyer sitting in his shop making horns one after another, just just making them. He had it worked out pretty much, although they're not all perfect for the high B flat. But he's definitely taking his time, making sure everything is just right, the little joints, yeah. everything. Yeah, and then uh, we get to a factory situation. They they can't do that. They got yeah. to basically pulling parts out of a bin. They're putting them together in jigs, and and it's it's just not going to be quite the same. So, um, but now we've actually got factory gauge style horns that are really quite good. Uh, but it's again because yeah. Um, yeah. Of things like CNC lace and everything else, you know, they've they've just improved what they can do so much in recent years. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty incredible. Now it's like what you said. It's kind of a golden age for uh, <laughs> horns and mouthpieces. There's there's a lot of great stuff out there. Another thing, sometimes well, again, I mentioned I have this crispy, which was made in like you know 1947 or something like that, and it's very interesting to play on. But then again, I don't see it ever being like my main horn really. Um, it's like mm-hmm. the ergonomics are not quite as good as modern instruments, and it's an old horn. It's like. You know, I mean, it's fun to drive. I'm sure if I was collecting cars, it might be fun to have a car from that period mm-hmm. to just drive around on, you know, Sunday or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of what the crispy that I have is. It's kind of in that category. It's interesting. It's mm-hmm. It's been interesting to have, but um, I don't know that it'd be, yeah, I think you really want to have a horn that's much more recently produced as your daily driver. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just especially if you get paid in any capacity to <laughs> to play your instrument, you want it you want it to be something you can rely on for sure. Yeah. Yeah.